please, to Acts chapter 7. We are going to cover today this entire long chapter. This is the longest speech or sermon that we find in Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, or perhaps better said, and I hope that we will see as we work through Acts chapter 7 today, that perhaps it's just as much, if not more, Jesus himself who is continuing to work on behalf of and through his people. Luke begins the book of Acts that way, that the first book that he wrote, the Gospel of Luke, was a record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And as we have tried to remind ourselves as we've been working through the book of Acts, it's about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. And so we have not been in here for a few weeks, a month or so, as we took time off for Advent. But now that we are back here in the new year, we are going to jump right back into the text that God has for us as his people. So I do want to remind us of the purpose of why we are going through the book of Acts. Obviously, all Scripture is breathed by God and is given to us that we might profit from it. But at this particular season of our church, we are learning increasingly what it means to live together as a body and to extend the hope of the gospel that we enjoy with those who need it here in our local communities and around the world. And so I want to remind us once again, and I'll be doing this pretty often through our exposition through the book of Acts, of what our mission as a church is. We exist to worship our great and gracious God by making disciples in our community and around the world. That's why this church exists. If we do not exist for this purpose, we are not only clearly disobeying the great commission left for us by Jesus, but there's really no reason for us to be here. We won't be happy. Christ won't be pleased, and we will lose heart and focus. But God, through His Word and the influence of His Spirit, teaches, corrects, and restores. And it is our prayer as elders that as we work through this special book in the New Testament that we will once again see what we are called to as the redeemed community of God to seek more that Jesus Christ might be praised and that our joy might increase to its fullest extent. So that's why we're working together through the book of Acts. I want to read to you the final part of our section from last time we were in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8, down through verse 15. We'll review just very, very briefly our basic truths that we found last time, and then we're going to read the entirety of Acts chapter 7, and I'm going to talk about that again before we start it so that you can stay focused as I read. So let's read together Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and remind ourselves contextually where we've been. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We learned from Acts chapter 6, the entirety of the chapter, what our church must prioritize. First, it must prioritize practical and equitable care for our people. We found that in verses 1 through 7. There were some who were being neglected in mercy ministry, and as they spoke about this problem to the apostles, the apostles directed that men would be chosen from among them to take good care of them, and that's what they did so that there would be equal care given to the church body. Furthermore, 
the church must prioritize a commitment to growing disciples. This is why the apostles instructed the people to choose men from among them to do this mercy ministry so that they, the apostles, could continue in the ministry of the word and prayer. They could not neglect the growth of disciples. This is part and parcel of the Great Commission. Not just that we make converts, but that each member of the body is growing in faith and maturity. And then the verses that we just read, verses 8 through 15, we find Stephen as a beautiful example, one who was chosen to do this mercy ministry. But more than that, Stephen was a courageous evangelist. So these are the priorities of our church. There, there are more, perhaps, that we could spell out, but that provides us kind of a basic outline of what we should care about as a church. We should take care of the practical needs of our people. We should make sure that each member is growing in faith and love, and then as each is doing so, we should spread the good news of Jesus here and around the world. Well, that brings us to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 teaches us many things. We could spend weeks and weeks working through Acts chapter 7 in all of its detail. But if we do that, we will probably miss the primary thrust of this chapter. And including the first few verses of chapter 8, the basic truth, the most fundamental truth that comes out to us is this. Nothing not a man, not an occasion, nothing can stop God's sovereign plan of redemption. This truth grants us abiding assurance and unwavering confidence as we join Him in the spread of the gospel message through which He rescues the lost. And by taking it all in one big bite, one big drink from the cup, I think we'll see this primary thrust. So let's listen together to God's word. Please read along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land... And from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now, I do not think that the council was losing interest in what Stephen had to say, so let's not lose interest ourselves. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. 
And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing, his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him about Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Please stick with me. The climax is coming. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. We find in the first major, large portion of Acts chapter 7, where the scriptures tell the story of God's sovereign grace, though tragically, many reject him. The scriptures tell the story of God's sovereign grace, though tragically, many reject him. Why were the crowds and now the council of Israel, why were they so angry at Stephen? They were angry because he threatened what they treasured. You can know what you treasure when what you treasure is threatened. What you find your identity in when that is threatened... If you kick and scream, you can pretty much know that that's the thing that you long for the most. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you find your identity, if you treasure being well thought of, but something about your character or something that you've done gets exposed and confronted, if you are angry and distraught, and do everything that you can to tweak the narrative and come off in a better light, if you are defensive in those moments, you can be pretty assured that you find your identity in your own righteousness. Now, I'm sure that none of you struggle with that. You never struggle with being defensive. You never struggle with tweaking the narrative a bit, so you come off in a better light. None of you struggle with that. I struggle with that because I want to be well thought of. I want people to think I'm smart and wise and holy and righteous and faithful and loyal and all those other things. And whenever it's revealed that I am not all of those things, at least to the degree that I should be, my tendency initially is to say, well, you have this wrong, which exposes that often in my heart I treasure the wrong things. So, Those of you who know me well enough know that I, and you do too, we struggle with self-righteousness. We have other idols, other things that we treasure. When we learn that a layoff is coming in our business, our corporation, if the first thing we do is freak out because we're worried that we won't be able to take care of the mortgage or groceries or the electric bill, it may well indicate that our Confidence ultimately is not in the one who gives us everything that we have, but in our treasures and possessions. When we have a biopsy, we're waiting on a diagnosis from the doctor or some other health scare that is going to take some time to discern, and our hearts are racked by anxiety and all the things that could happen, and we spend more time on WebMD than we do in prayer and in the Word. It exposes that we value and treasure health and our ability to control our destinies more than we treasure God and His kind providence, which He promises will always sustain us. In this particular instance, what were the Jews so angry about, particularly the Jewish leaders? They were angry that what they thought would lead to eternal life, what they thought was their source of righteousness, was no righteousness at all. It is not as though Stephen thought that the temple was insignificant and inconsequential 
in the life of Israel. He gives credence to that. God gave Israel a tabernacle whenever they were mobile. And eventually in the settled kingdom from David's son Solomon, a temple was built. And God manifested His presence in the center, so to speak, of the country through those means. Stephen knew those things were important. But, but Stephen knew that God could not be contained in a tent. God could not be contained in the locale of a gold-covered building, as glorious and beautiful and significant as it was. But all of these things and more in Moses' law and in the revelation of the Old Testament were anticipatory. They were preparatory. Anticipating what? Preparing the people for what? For the coming of God Himself in human flesh to rescue them. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, not by laws that you should keep and things that you should do and then things that you shouldn't do, not by loving your brother, your neighbor, or foreigners perfectly, not by revering the laws and customs of their fathers, but true righteousness could only come by faith in the one who alone can justify As we've learned before many times, justification, God declaring us righteous, has nothing to do with what we merit, what we earn. God justifies exclusively on the basis of faith in the one who alone is righteous. The Old Testament was anticipatory. It was not life-giving, but it pointed to the one who would one day come and give life. And Stephen, who was not one of the apostles, testified to this boldly, exposing the self-righteous, empty confidence of his countrymen and showing them instead that they didn't have to work so hard, they didn't have to labor to merit the righteousness of God. It would never work anyway. There's a reason why they were miserable. They had ended up just comparing themselves to each other rather than to the ultimate standard of God, which they couldn't keep anyway. They knew this. But Jesus had come to end the struggle. Jesus had come to grant them life. Jesus had kept all the laws that they could not keep. They knew they couldn't. They put a veneer of righteousness in their daily living, but they couldn't keep it up, just like you and I can't. So Jesus was perfectly obedient where they couldn't be. Then he died the death that they deserved justly for all of their unrighteousness. Thousands upon thousands of sins. He bore them all. And he offered himself freely as the true temple, as the true Israel of God. Succeeding where they had failed. Offering himself up as a fragrant sacrifice to God so that All who will receive him might find life. And he was raised from the dead to conquer the penalty of sin and the power of it. So Stephen preached the gospel. And it's really fascinating if you think about it that the longest sermon, if you will, in Acts is not by Peter. It's not by Paul. It's not by one of the other apostles. It's by one of these people who was chosen to do deacon-like stuff. Which means that, probably if you have some intuition, you know where I'm going with this. This is, this is not just for the people you call elder here. This is for all of us to know the word to this depth, to this degree, that we might not only understand it, internalize it, and embrace it, but be capable and able to share it when necessary. Stephen, in some ways, was a special man. We know this from the beginning of chapter 6. The apostles say that the people are to choose from among them seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And we know from verse 5 of chapter 6 that that's who Stephen was. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So Stephen was one of the guys that kind of stood out. He, he, was, he was remarkable in some senses. But in another sense, he was just one of the people from among the church as a whole. And like everybody else, he had been rescued from his own rebellion, his own tendency to run from God. 
God had made him his own. And Stephen was gripped by this. And the very fact that Stephen could explain the Word of God so succinctly and so powerfully in the moment, it's not as though they put him in prison and gave him a few weeks to prepare his speech or a defense. That wasn't what this was like. Stephen was like a man planted by streams of water, a mighty oak that withstands the storms and turmoil of life and brings forth its fruit in its season. And it was time to bring fruit, and it came. Stephen was like all of us. But Stephen was compelled by the gospel by which he had been saved and through which others might be rescued too. And as he had had time at the feet of the apostles, perhaps daily, to hear the apostles and the inspiration of the Spirit who had spent time with Jesus explain the Word of God day after day after day, the story became crystal clear to him. Stephen did not look at the Old Testament merely as a compilation of things that he should avoid and things that he should pursue. And by the way, as we are well aware, this is not just a first century problem from 2,000 years ago. The average American, and frankly, tragically, probably the average Christian looks at the Bible this way. It's a long list, a laundry list of things that we shouldn't do, things that we should do. But Stephen had learned at the feet of the apostles, those who had spent time with Jesus, that's not what the Bible is about at all. The Bible is a story of love, of redemptive love, wherein God sovereignly, by His grace, pursues the lost and wandering and makes them His own. And despite all human struggle, despite all satanic opposition, He will bring His promises to pass. And Stephen understood that, and he was gripped by it. So what did he do when he had a chance to save himself? He could have come before the council and said, listen, maybe I have this wrong. After all, you are the experts. I'm hanging out with these guys from like northern Israel. They're uneducated, and, and maybe I've got this wrong. That is not what he did at all. He just launched into it. And what did he tell primarily? That nothing can stop God's sovereign plan of redemption. And he had unwavering confidence that in the preaching of the good news, God would work, even if it cost him everything. And he had seen in the history of Israel, as explained to him by the apostles, that others had given their lives for this very thing. We won't take time, of course, to read back through these 53 verses, but, but as you read through them, you get this notion, this, this basic intuition that Stephen is trying to say, your rejection of the gospel that I am preaching, your rejection of this good news, that, that this church thing that's growing up, this assembly of followers of Jesus, this good news that we embrace and that we are preaching, your rejection of it, your inability to understand that we are saying is not new. This has characterized our nation from the beginning. How did it begin? Well, chapter 7, verse 2, God called Abraham out of paganism. That's how it started. Abraham was not this model of righteousness. Abraham was a pagan that God pursued and made his own. His children were the same. God made great promises to Abraham. And eventually those promises came to at least partial fulfillment. He grew them into a nation. And despite great opposition and great tragedy and great mistreatment under this king that arose after Joseph, who mistreated the Israelites and put them into slavery and shrewdly mistreated them, God rescued them anyway through this man named Moses, who for 40 years of his life had grown up in the palace affair. And then in doing something that he thought was good and defending a countryman, Sends him out into the wilderness for 40 years. We struggle when we have to wait for an answer for like seven hours. Moses had to wait 40 more years in the middle of nowhere. And then what does God do? 
to an angel. God shows up in a bush. Moses was not expecting this, of course, and tells him to go get his people. Moses does. Through great opposition in Egypt, they are delivered. God brings them out by a mighty hand, enriches them, leads them through the waters of judgment by protecting them and then crashing the waves of the Red Sea back down upon Pharaoh and his host, destroying them, takes them to Sinai, gives them his law, but they reject Moses. Then they have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 more years. Moses is like, God, I see a pattern here, right? Eventually they go into the land under Joshua. And though there are high points at times, by and large, all the way back to the beginning of the nation, what characterized them, despite the fact that they were privy to great and precious promises, they rejected God over and over and over again. And they could sit there very righteously in their robes and their seats of judgment as this upstart person named Stephen, who had no credibility, spoke to them about the history of Israel, thinking that they were righteous, that they were the righteous recipients of God's law and all the promises and the heritage of their forefathers. But Stephen very deftly, very carefully, very discerningly shows them that their problem is the problem that the nation had had as a pattern from the beginning. That despite the fact that God had made his good news known, God had not withheld his covenantal love. But despite the fact that he had done that, God's people had rejected him over and over and over again. And Stephen who was full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, could diagnose it for what it was. And I say to you that this is one of the signs of maturity that comes for the people of God as they grow in their comprehension of the gospel. That they will have a really good sniffer for self-righteousness. I've read statistics before on what a bloodhound can do. It's really fascinating there's other animals like this, like, like grizzly bears and sharks. They can smell like one drop of blood and like 10,000 gallons of water or something like this. Um, you know, humans can't do that. We, we can smell something, but like our dog smells it way more quickly than that. Like when I come in from one of a friend's houses that has another pet, my dog goes crazy like sniffing up and down my leg because she's driven by her nose. One of the signs of a really mature Christian is that your sniffer gets really sensitive. Your, your sniffer for self-righteousness. By God's grace, hopefully and primarily, that is employed, first of all, with ourselves. That we can detect whenever we are finding our righteousness in other things. But likewise, it should be employed in helping other people. Christians and unchristians, unbelievers. Helping them see that when they are trusting in something other than Jesus and Jesus alone, that this will not lead to life. Stephen had a really good sniffer for this. We've already said that Stephen didn't take the easy way out and say, well, maybe I've got this all wrong. Stephen also didn't take the easy way out and just give like a little history lesson and then let them off the hook. Stephen is driving toward a point. Just as the people had rejected Moses in the past, rejected the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest, they too had rejected God's final great prophet, Jesus, who of course was more than that. He was the Son of God who had come to give his life for his people. And Stephen comes to the end of his sermon in verse 51, and he brings it to a close by saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Let me read that phrase again. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This has characterized our nation, is what Stephen is saying. And it's because of the disease of self-righteousness. And every son and daughter of Adam and Eve have it. As your fathers did... Now he identifies them with the 
rejectors of the past, as your fathers did. End of verse 51, so do you. The council was not used to being spoken to like this. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then you see, as we will look in just a moment, at the reaction to that. This was like the ultimate altar call. This was like the supreme come-to-Jesus moment, literally. Let's take just a moment and dial it back and, and rest in the first 53 verses and what they reveal to us. We've just come out of a year, and we're coming into a new one. I remember when I was an undergrad, I had a, a professor his name was Dr. Wisdom, which was a great professor's name. Um, you know, I, most of you know I grew up in kind of steep fundamentalism and legalism, but there were bright spots along the way. And he was a really nice man, really gentle and kind. And uh, he had these phrases that he was sort of famous for. But one of the things that he would do, and, and I had him for a few subjects, one of the things that he would do is anytime there was like a flipping of the calendar, whether it was like a new semester or a new school year or whatever, is he would look at us, and this was not common in the culture I grew up in. I, w I grew up in a very performance-oriented culture. But I, he always stuck out to me because he would do this thing I'm getting ready to describe to you. He would say, it, it's the beginning of a new chapter. Old things are past, and they're covered by the righteousness of Jesus, and we have a chance to trust him in a new season. And I always loved that. Because I always struggled with that performance culture. I, I never really fit in. I always had this nagging intuition that it was ugly and it wasn't life-giving. And Dr. Wisdom, in his silver-haired way, would, would remind us that, that Jesus is kind and good and offers us his grace. And as we read through these first 53 verses of Acts chapter 7, Though Stephen is driving at a point that he's going to expose the self-righteous disease of his countrymen, when I read these verses, primarily I am comforted. What did God do for Abraham? He sought him when Abraham was doing anything but seeking him. What did he do to Abraham's offspring, like Isaac and Jacob, who were liars and deceivers and failures? Especially Jacob's story. We have a lot of chapters about Jacob and his story. And then Jacob's sons, they were a disaster. What did God do? He was kind. He was gracious. What did he do whenever he took them down into Egypt? He took them there to, to preserve their lives. If you remember, Joseph's family was going to die from famine in Canaan. God brings them into the land and enriches them and blesses them. But then it turns around and they go into slavery. And God raises up a guy from obscurity and brings him in with his brother and a staff and delivers him from the mighty nation. God kept his promises to Israel when they rejected him over and over and over again. And when tragedy and foreign powers seemed to threaten them and to undo all that he had promised. My brother and sister, if you have trusted Jesus, herein lies promise for you as we enter into a new year. Are you ashamed of the past? All of us are in some ways. Are you fearful that the past and what you've experienced will be your experience in the future? Rejection, failure, struggle, emotional distress, physical malady? What has God done on behalf of his people? The scriptures teach us that if God did not withhold his son from us, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Now, does that mean that in this flipping of the calendar as we look forward to a new year that trial will not be our lot? It doesn't mean that. You might struggle with depression again this year. 
you might be sick going into 2018 and throughout. Your ledger, your finances, may not turn around in ways that you want in the coming year. The insolvency of your company, it may not be solved in the coming year. Some of your tendencies, you may struggle with the same ones in the coming year. But it's striking as you take a bird's eye view of God's redemptive story. And that's what Stephen really carefully does in these first 53 verses. He takes sort of the entirety of the story and he says, here it is. Let me me lay it out for you. And though it was meant to indict the self-righteous, it was meant by the Holy Spirit to encourage us, his people. What do the first 53 verses of Acts chapter 7 prove to us? That God loves us and we will be okay. Now, I said that very, I could have said that with, with more precise theological language. I could have used words like providence and sovereignty and maybe wowed you with some Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. But I just want to say it really simply again. God loves you and you will be okay. We aren't big with mantras in our evangelical Christian circles, but maybe that's one you should mark down somewhere. Because I'm not sure we believe it. God loves us. And we will be okay. Now, that's not what Stephen is primarily driving at, but I want to say that to you. God loves you. And you will be okay. Stephen's primary thrust is to show this crowd, and primarily the Jewish leaders of the council, that despite the fact God had been so gracious to them and showing them his grace, they had all historically rejected him, and which is what they were doing to Stephen now. But what do the next set of verses teach us, verses 54 through 60? Even through the worst of tragedy and loss, the Lord Jesus will keep his promises to his people. Do not be surprised in the coming year that when you speak the gospel, and yes, you must speak the gospel, not just if you have the name elder or whatever, but all of us, just like Stephen. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record this sermon in this length from a normal guy. All of us have to be in the game. So in the coming year, whenever we express the good news to those who are self-righteous, even if the worst of tragedy and loss comes to pass, which is not likely for us here in this land, The Lord Jesus will keep his promises to his people. That's what he did for Stephen. Stephen was not hoping in being elevated to a council seat. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. That wasn't his hope at all. Stephen's hope was not to preserve his life, which is where most of us live. Most of us scramble around all the time trying to preserve our lives, right? That's why we probe and surf the web whenever we are sick, trying to find a diagnosis for our malady. That is why we worry about our jobs or lack thereof. This is why we struggle with our friendships and worry about them. We are always sort of struggling and scrambling, trying to keep ourselves happy and well. Stephen believed fundamentally that being well, being at peace, was not in preserving his life. And he gave it up. Stephen was not shocked, I am sure. They were so angry at him. And Luke records this really well. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You had somebody so mad at you they did it to you? Uh, one of my kids, I won't tell you which one, um, the other day, he did something that I was so mad at him. I, I looked at him, and, and I sinned in the moment. I, I want to admit that. But I, I looked at him in the moment, and I was so angry that I was t- talking through my teeth. And, and I said, I can't even talk to you right now. And I sat him down in my office, and I just walked away because I was so angry. Uh, and he didn't even do something that bad. But Stephen exposed their self-righteousness. He was after them. He, he pierced them to the core. He hit them where they live. 
and in rage and in gritting of the teeth, they come after him. But notice his tranquility in verse 55. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's not running away. He's not ducking and covering. He's not looking for colleagues in the crown that can squirrel him away. He just looks up into heaven and what does he see? Great reward. He sees the glory of God and his son Jesus, the righteous one that he talked about in verse 52. The culmination of God's promise of redemption. The one that all of the Old Testament fathers had been looking forward to. He's standing up. This is significant. Jesus had gone to his rest after his ascension to be seated with the Father, awaiting the call to come in his second advent, his second coming, to come and rescue us and restore the world. But here is Jesus standing. He doesn't stand up in a sense that he's saying, hey, Stephen, you're one of us. Stephen doesn't get to share in the glory of the Trinity and and be one of them. That's not what he's saying. It's not what Jesus is doing here. But he does honor his own. He honored Stephen's faith. And here's the idea, just very simply. Stephen banked on Jesus. Stephen staked his claim in Jesus. And nothing else mattered him, even his own life. So what did he get? He got a vision of glory. And you'd think he might leave well enough alone, but he talks about it in verse 56. And he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They knew what he was talking about. So this very one that they were calling him to reject, he says, I see him and he's with the Father, equating him with God. And they're so angry in verse 57 that they cry out and they stop their ears going like, la, 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 la. You know, like when you do whenever you're a kid and you don't want to hear your brother or sister talk anymore. They were irrational. These are adults. And they come to him, cast him out of the city, and they stone him. This was an illegal execution. They didn't really have the right to do this. But for just a moment, they were so enraged that they were not worried about what Rome might do to them. They just wanted to shut this guy up because what he said pierced them to their core. The Lord Jesus keeps his promises. Verse 59, Stephen cries out, receive my spirit. And like his Savior in verse 60, he asks the Lord Jesus not to hold these sins against them. Even at the end, he was full of mercy. And this is a beautiful picture of how the Christian should be in their witness. Not only full of truth, but full of mercy too. So, We should never be unkind or mean or calloused in the way that we share the good news with those who need it. We should always be full of kind mercy. And then, into verse 60, he pays the ultimate price and he dies. Even through the worst of tragedy and loss, the Lord Jesus will keep his promises to his people. His promise to us is not ultimately safety. His promise to us is not ultimately earthly glory. His promise to us is that He will receive us. Not because of anything good that we have or that we have done, but by His own good, righteous grace. So, what did Stephen get? He got the promise. The one that Abraham had been promised, the one that Abraham was waiting for, the one that sustained Joseph in the midst of his imprisonment and mistreatment, the one that sustained Moses whenever he was in the backside of the desert, when his own people rejected him, the one that sustained the prophets, though the forefathers of Stephen and the people here in this council have rejected them, what sustained them when everybody else rejected them? That God would receive them. And that's what Jesus does here. And that brings us to the finality of our section today, the first three verses of chapter 8. God uses tragedy to further his providential redemption of the world. If you remember, way back in chapter 1, Jesus says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world. And up to this point, the gospel had been contained in Jerusalem. And here when we find in these first three verses that Jesus is at work. The apostles were not getting the gospel beyond the environs of the city. So Jesus acted through tragedy. 
And Saul approved of his execution, this one that we find mentioned in verse 58. I don't have to foreshadow too much here. You know who this is. His Hebrew name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And he would become one of the most mighty proclaimers of the good news of Jesus that there ever was. And you have to believe that he was deeply impacted by this moment. You find in verse 1 of chapter 8 that the gospel does then go to Judea and Samaria because of the persecution. This does not mean that Stephen's death wasn't tragedy. The scriptures maintain this tension. What happened to Stephen was awful. It was sinister. And the church received it as such. They made great lamentation over him. And then horrible things kept happening. Saul went from house to house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was evil and wicked and malevolent. But the gospel went forward. And as we know, as we will look forward to in chapter 9, this one named Saul, later more well-known as Paul, would lay his very life down later for the sake of the gospel, the one that he had rejected, the Jesus that he hated, his followers that he imprisoned and killed, he would one day lead and shepherd and join their ranks. God uses tragedy to further his providential redemption of the world. Turn with me, if you don't mind, quickly to Mark chapter 13. It is good and wise of us to know the gospel deeply and to prepare well to speak it. But we learn from Mark chapter 13, verse 3, that the Holy Spirit will be with us as we speak it. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, Jesus did with Peter and James and John and Andrew. They asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And down with me in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. They bring you to trial and deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what we see happening to Stephen in Acts chapter 7? The apostles like Peter and James and John and Andrew told Stephen this would happen. And then when it happened, Stephen was ready. This man who was full of the Holy Spirit spoke, and the power of the Spirit, all the things that he had dwelt upon and learned, which is why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, you know these verses perhaps well, tells us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, particularly whenever we suffer for the sake of righteousness. So there's this tension here between preparing well, knowing the Word well internally, and proclaiming it boldly in the power of the Spirit with the words that he gives. Jim Elliott has famously said in a journal entry of his in 1949 when he was finishing up at Wheaton College in Chicago, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Most of you know the story of Jim Elliott. He was killed along with some of his companions by the Aka or Harani Indians down in Ecuador. Um, 62 years ago tomorrow, January 8th, um, so it's the 62nd year tomorrow of Jim Elliott and his friends giving their lives for the sake of the gospel in Ecuador. You know, the rest of the story, many of those from the tribe of the Harani were converted because of the blood of these martyrs and the promise of the gospel. And so I say to you, like Stephen would say to us, even though this might seem so distant for us, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And th that's our calling. So some of you should go to places that are dangerous. Some of you should, should be willing to champion your children to go to places that are dangerous. That's why we send our money to places that are dangerous, because not all of us will go, but, but we must do so here. 
It is unlikely that we will pay the ultimate price that Stephen did, but even if we were to, Jesus is with us and will keep all of his promises and use even the greatest of tragedy to bring himself glory. I'm not sure how well this will show up. I just put a new bulb in the projector the other day. Maybe you can see it a little bit. Um, this is the most recent, most recent retreat from uh, the focus staff that we uh, support in the United Arab Emirates. And so dozens and dozens of dozens of people came to this retreat where the gospel was proclaimed and several people came to faith. Um, you know, we, sell, we uh, support Nissan and Joanna Matthew over there. They lead this ministry. I'll put up a couple more pictures. Uh, this is at the University of Wollongong. That's an Australian university that has a campus in Dubai. A couple of us actually were there a few years ago. This is a Christmas gathering. You can't see it real well, but they're all kind of sitting on beanbags. Um, the university there, even though they allow a, uh, a Christian organization to sort of run there, they usually are in pretty strong opposition to it, but somehow they got a Christmas party through this year and several people heard the gospel. Um, this is a new campus that was reached in another part of the United Arab Emirates where a number of people are attending a weekly Bible study. Um, uh, this is in one of the northern emirates in the United Arab Emirates where a basketball team has been reached now by a coach and by a chaplain. And recently, a Bible study has been started where a number of Muslim background people are starting to hear the gospel on a regular basis. Um, several of these people who have recently come to faith are joining churches and being baptized and being discipled. And, and I tell you that for your encouragement. So sometimes whenever you hear a passage like this, you just think, I stink, our church stinks, like there's nothing good going on. There is the money that you sacrifice to give to these missionaries and to this team, look what's happening in, in dangerous places. The gospel is being proclaimed and people from all kinds of backgrounds are coming to faith in Jesus in part because of what you are doing. I'm just, I couldn't be more proud as one of your elders to be part of what you are allowing us to do. It's exciting. But in the coming year, may God do more. May he not just do it through our money, but may he do it through our personal witness. So, how do we close all this out first? Let us read and meditate deeply on the scriptures this year, discerning especially the promises of the gospel story. If you're struggling with whether or not God really loves you and you're going to be okay, you'll never, you'll never get there. You'll, you'll never find solace and peace just by worrying. You've got to go to the Word. But, but you've got to know the story well so that you can share it. So if you don't have a Bible reading plan yet, and we're not super legalistic about that here, but you need to be in the Word, I'll just say that. Whatever plan you choose, be in the Word. If you don't know what plan to choose, we will help you with that. I can send you a link. We can give you some copies if you're more old school in that way of Bible reading plans. But be in the Word this year. Push back against your tendency toward unbelief. Push back against your tendency to, to shrivel away. Know the Scriptures well, like Stephen did and be ready to embrace, trust in, and proclaim the gospel story. Secondly, let us trust and obey the Lord Jesus to position us strategically in engaging others with this hope. This means you pray, and then you speak. And you pray, and you speak. Pray that the Lord Jesus will bring you into contact with people who need to hear the good news, and then speak. But, but prayer has to undergird that. It must precede that. And thirdly and lastly, let us walk in the Spirit, relying upon Him to use our lives and words to testify to our hope in Jesus. How did Stephen walk? Stephen walked in the Spirit and he was ready. And he relied upon Him, not on his own intellect, not on his own strength. He relied upon the Spirit to use his life and words to testify to hope in Jesus. And his legacy lives on. And may we, by the grace of the good Lord Jesus, and the powerful comforter do the same. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now I pray that through your spirit you will take this really important and profound portion of scripture and apply it to our hearts and minds. Transform us for your glory. Transform others through our message, your message of good news. Please make us your own in full faith and confidence. May we engage Lewis Center and Westerville and Delaware and Marion and all around us with the good news of Jesus. May we pray for them. Lord, there are people all around us this very day who are 
dying and they will be punished eternally if you do not save them by the gospel of Jesus. And they won't hear unless we preach. And none of us will preach unless we're sent. So, so we pray that by your grace we will mutually encourage one another to take this good news to this community all around us that desperately needs it, who will be lost without it. Then may our missionaries in Dubai and Kenya and around the world take the good news as well with boldness and love and mercy like Stephen had to those who desperately need it. Transform us by the hope of the gospel and through us proclaim the hope of the gospel. Do this, Jesus, for your glory and for our joy and the joy of many. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and stand.